welcome to Everything Leftover. <laughs> Our podcast on HBO's The Leftovers. My name is Justin Blizzard, and I'm here with Keith Krepko. Keith? Yep. How are you doing tonight? Oh, I, I, I wasn't expecting that question. Yeah. Uh, I'm doing fantastic. How Good. about you? I'm doing okay. You want to talk about that? Let's. I think we're going to. Oh, it's all linked. Yeah. Okay. It's all uh, tied into one common thread, unlike the show we're about to talk about. Uh-oh. Shots are fired. <laughs> the first shot's been fired. Um, but before we get into the, the finale of The Leftovers, I wanted to first thank... We had a, a, a lot of positive feedback in the past couple of weeks. Um a couple of users on Reddit who checked out the podcast, I want to just give them a shout out real quick. Uh, their their uh, usernames are Car underscore Nick and Baron DD, uh, but they were they were really positive. Checked out the show, so uh, we appreciate that. And also wanted to say thanks to a boomer who emailed me after last episode, and we were able to um, figure out the. The, our setup and sort of get get his theory posted on the website. So if yeah. you didn't have a chance to read that, I would say go read it on the website. Uh, and I also received another email from Brian uh, who brought up an interesting, what I thought was an interesting theory. And again, it's kind of like with the aliens thing. It's a theory that I think you can extrapolate from the show, even though there's not any evidence of it in the show, Right. But what I found really interesting about it is that it um, ties into something we talked about on our other podcast, the Fermi Paradox, right? What is that other podcast? It's called Everything is Interesting. Oh, and we talked okay. about the Fermi Paradox. Uh, but Brian's idea was basically that the show The Leftovers could be a uh, alien civilization's computer simulation of a society, right? That's what the people in The Leftovers are living in. The, de- the departure would be could be a glitch in the system or you know whatever who knows it could be anything really uh, if if that is the idea but you know after reading that from him it reminded me of the Fermi paradox so we ended up having a long kind of a long exchange on that that I found really interesting um, more interesting than anything in the show I would say <laughs> well the, the one thing that I'll say <clears throat> this kind of teases our conversation a little bit Uh is I find the the reuse of sets and right. you know moments to be somewhat alarming where it's really starting to stand out now where it does feel like yeah are they just operating moving around in the same 10 locations is it a budget thing is it a budget thing yeah. or is it a simulation where these people are just like, oh, you want to go to the diner? Well, guess which diner you're going to? The same diner everybody right. goes to. And guess right. who's going to be there? Everybody in this story is going to be there, you yeah. know? So yeah, there may be something to that. That's true. Uh, and then the last thing I want to talk about is uh, we've been receiving the, the packages in the mail and the text messages and stuff. And I received what I would imagine to be a final package. Did you see that? That I what I posted. Yes. So yeah, they sent a me a package. Text. No, no, no. It was they oh, sent me a package. It was a um. It was a digital photo frame, right? Okay. So I plugged it in, and the first thing I did was check the contents of the memory stick. 
Yeah. Um, and it just had a file name on it, just a single uh, movie file name, right? That, and it had my name in the file name. Ooh. So it was just like LFT underscore. How big is the memory stick? Justin. It's like four gigs. Ah, you know? Yeah. That's pretty good. Um, so I plugged it in and started playing it. And it was, and it's just a video of two Guilty Remnant members smoking and staring straight into the camera or straight at me, right? And like 30 seconds into the video, one of the Guilty Remnant members holds up a sign that says, stop wasting your breath, Justin, right? <laughs> uh, and that was it. And then it's like four minutes of that, right? And then she puts the sign down, four more minutes of them smoking, and they hold up another sign that just says, like, we are the living reminders, and it ends. But it's actually like... Creepy? It was creepy, right? Like, for as, as sort of as much crap as I've given the Guilty Remnant throughout the series of being like, I don't, I, I feel like it would be easy to just brush them off and just be like, that's what they're doing. Even though I knew this was fake and this production, like, it still, like, unnerved me a little bit, right? And I also find it strange that, like, as muddied as the Guilty Remnant's message is in the show, like, their social media game is pretty on point, right? Yeah. They know what they're doing. Yeah. They, they got they, like viral social media lockdown. Right. They recruited somebody who like worked on a big airline or something. He was doing PR. Yeah. He's like, okay, guys, I got I got this. Right. Yeah. So um, I just thought that was uh, that was and I think it's interesting, too, because, you know, this is the first time we've obviously podcasted about a show. It's the closest I've ever followed a show for better or worse. I don't know. Like if this level of marketing is common or if this is like something that they're kind of testing out, you know what I mean? But it's interesting. Uh, but at the same time, it makes me feel like, and this is something too we'll talk about later, but if this is purely a show about grief, it's about the characters. It's not about the mystery of the departure. It's not about the mystery of the characters. You know what I mean? Right. Like, what's the point of having these bizarre, not bizarre, but just sort of like obtuse text messages that you're sending out of like sending out these packages of stuff where it's like, you know what I mean? It, it so you, feels like it's marketing towards intrigue, right? right. And so like, like if this show was purely about the characters, shouldn't I be receiving like, I mean, I, I feel like I wouldn't be receiving anything. You well, know what well I mean? yeah. Or so basically what you want are like, a soaking wet handkerchief full of Kevin's tears. <laughs> right, like an empty pill bottle. An empty pill bottle, <laughs> right. yeah. A vial of tears. Yeah, yeah. It just seems it just seems strange. You know right. what I mean? It seems more in tune with a... Uh, it a seems more show. in tune with a with an event. With a event you know what I mean? Like yeah. they're trying to build up towards an event. Yeah. And I don't necessarily equate a huge event with character-based drama. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I and I'm thinking now about this marketing campaign with another show, like or even with like a horror show, you know, that like extends the atmosphere and mood right. of the of the show. But that extension of the guilty remnant specifically, yeah, the it's interesting to question how does that fit in the world of the show? Right. You know, because they are just one piece. They're not the show. So why what is where are they trying to convey in their marketing to you as as the viewer or the community you yeah. know and it yeah it doesn't seem to really maybe have a 
coherent message. Is that what you're kind of saying? Or it just it seems, it's just, to me, it just seems strange because it doesn't strike me as something that would happen with a, like the wire, right? The wire is kind of, it's about the characters you're watching. Right. I wouldn't imagine people from the wire mailing me drugs, like do rags. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it just seems, it's, it seems strange right. that it would be, you, you know, it's, I think this might be a crude comparison, but it's kind of like, it's like, um, and I've never seen under the dome. Right. But it's like if you're watching Under the Dome and the creators are telling you, you know, you're obviously watching this society that's been covered in a mysterious dome, right? But then the creators are like, look, it's not about the dome. Forget about the dome. But then they're email or they're mailing you stuff in the mail that kind of it's like pertains the to the dome or to like the mystery at hand, which this stuff, I guess it doesn't because they're kind of mailing me like guilty remnant stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But like I said, it just. I guess I don't have a really good way to to vocalize it. It just seems sort of incongruous to character-driven drama to be mailing out guilty remnant dossiers and a trouble board game. You know what I mean? It just is, seems a little... Yeah. It's neat. Don't get me wrong. It's neat, and I'm definitely grateful for being included in the program. It just seems a little off-message to me for some reason. Yeah, you've finally been picked first for something. <laughs> You're on the squad. Yeah, well, let's talk about um, the finale. Episode 10, The Prodigal Son Returns. Mm-hmm. Um, and the title seems pretty obvious, right? You have It's two about Damon Lindelof's return to TV. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> pretty obvious. <laughs> right. He's back. <laughs> um, you have two sons returning, right? You have Tommy returning. You have Kevin returning. Oh, yeah, that too. Yeah. Uh, so the one thing, the one major talking point I wanted to talk about that the showrunners, writers, Damon Lindelof, Tom Parada have espoused the entire season long. This is a show about grief and it's about characters dealing with grief. So I wanted to talk about that as our main talking point for this episode. So we have the episode is focused on Kevin, right? And, um, Boy, I see. I don't even. I really don't even know like <laughs> where to begin because as much as as they've said that the show's about grief, like I don't see it. You know what I mean? I don't see. I don't. I, I feel like the show has spent more time dealing with who is Holy Wayne, what are his powers, are his powers real, than they have with you know this is Kevin Garvey, this is how he's grieving, this is what the departure has done to him. Like, uh, like up until the last two or three episodes of the season, you didn't even know who Kevin Garvey was, right? You didn't know why he was acting the way he was acting. So you kind of get this sense that, well, I mean, I guess he's, and I guess too, he's not grieving because he hasn't lost anybody, right? In the departure, at least. Like, Well, Nora says in her note to him at the end, that he has lost a lot. like. But what has he lost? Well, ask Nora, the lady who loses her whole family. Well, she, Nora doesn't tell us. Well, she apparently sees in Kevin, you know, somebody who has lost. So what is she well. seeing that I'm not? Well, I mean, I think you've seen the departure, you know, kind of destroy his family, you know, in a real sense where... 
his family is as gone as some of the people in the departure, yet he can see them, you know? And that's kind of, that's hard to deal with, you know? If somebody is dead and gone, there's nothing you can do, you know? And and if they're suffering, they're not suffering anymore, you know? But Kevin is seeing his family suffer and slowly die. And it's uh, it's really painful for him. And do you get like, do you think the show supports that idea or? Yeah, as best as it can. I mean, you know, I I definitely don't think it's as laser like focused in on that. But I think that that's there where you see a man, you know, who is punching walls and pictures and, you know, stuff and uh, screaming at his ex-wife that he doesn't want to divorce. I mean, you see a man who's incapable of kind of moving on from losing his family. I mean, I, I will say that, you know, one of the problems with that is in the flashbacks, doesn't seem like he really had much to begin with. You know, he, and he confesses in this episode that he was wanting to leave. He was wanting to leave his family, right. you know, and that he cheated on Lori. And so, you know, it's not like it was this idealized, you know, um, family that was then, broken apart so in some ways i think his grief is also mixed up in his realization of what a piece of crap he is you know Mm -hmm. yeah well let's let's talk about that so so we see at the end of the last episode or throughout the last episode episode nine that he's not really happy with his family yeah he's not happy with marriage he's just not happy right and in this episode, you um, he admits to as much, right? With with Matt in the diner scene. Yeah. So so he's telling Matt after or when the departure happened, he 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 uh, he hurried to Jill's school where Jill and Tommy was, ran inside and found them, and they were crying, uh, whatever they were doing, super happy to see him. And you get the impression that that was the moment that Kevin realized. He loved his family or he wanted it all to work out, right? Basically. Um, so that so I guess that's when everything changed for him. Yeah, well, it kind of goes in with Lori's theory that he always needs something to fix, you know, that you know, he was ready to leave his family, then all of a sudden this happens. Yeah. And you know, one way of taking it is the way that he does, which is it kind of realized how much he had and he realized he didn't want to lose them. But I think you could also look at it as he, another problem restarted itself and he was like, oh, hey, I'm I'm needed again. You know, I can help these people again. I think I'm going to stick around. I guess, but the whole, I guess the, the whole idea that, I guess maybe on like a subconscious level for him, but I feel like the whole way that the show is playing or at least that Kevin is looking at it as, he finally realized what he wanted in life. And it wasn't necessarily to always be saving somebody. It was to be with his family or whatever, right? But even that is contradicted in, at the end of episode eight when he's talking to Patty and Patty's asking him if he ever thinks about the departure. And he says no. He never, it's, he's never thinking about it. So it's like, it's like, which one is it? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Are, are you either... Is it either always at the forefront of your mind and that's what made you turn your life around and want to help your family and stay with your family and love your family? 
or is it that you're never thinking about it at all? You know what I mean? Because I feel like a guy whose life was literally turned completely around by the departure would always be thinking about that, would always have that, especially a guy who we've seen throughout the season work so hard to get his wife back or to, you know, keep his daughter's attention or to stay in contact with his estranged son. You know what I mean? Like, it just seems, it seems contradictory, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, the the only counter argument would be uh, that, you know, Kevin Jr. doesn't know himself, you know, basically his own truth, you know, that mm-hmm. uh, that's why Patty's like, you understand, because she knows that deep down he knows that what he's saying is false, you know? So I guess that could be the counter argument that in his mind, you know, the departure provided a clarity about his thinking about his family. Whereas again, the cynical version is, nope, he just saw people in need again and thought, now I can try and fix this. And then the alternative is that he was lying to Patty and lying to himself. He really did believe that he was like, I don't think about it. When really that just, that just shows the depth of his own kind of self-deception. Right. And I think the problem I have with, with any of those explanations is that you can make a fair argument for any of them, right? It's like in a show, I, I don't need to be hit over the head with what's going on or with the character's motivations. You I think they a little bit of direction. Right. I, I need a little less ambiguity though. You know what I mean? I think there are some things that this show has handled subtly very well, but it's a, it's a far minority compared to everything else they're doing, especially with Kevin. I just feel like I don't know who he is. I don't know what his motivations are. And I feel like every episode you get a, contradictory look at who he is or or why he's doing what he's doing or what is happening to him or what he it just seems like it just seems like it it goes beyond answering questions or solving a mystery it just is like like what who is this guy what are his motivations and what you're telling me in episode 10 is completely different from what you're telling me in episode 8 and what you told me in episode eight is totally different from what you told me in episode seven or whatever. Like, what is going on? So that has, I think that has led to some of my frustration is just kind of not knowing what is happening with the characters. In a show that's supposed to be about the characters, admittedly from the writers, there aren't really any strong characters in the show besides Nora. And at one point, I would say Matt... I would no longer put Matt in that category mm. based on some of the things he's done. Nora, I think, is the show's strongest character. Outside of her, everyone else is a wet noodle, basically, <laughs> right? Like, you don't know why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, I, I will I will kind of uh, back you up on Matt. I feel like Matt was at, reached his zenith on his you know character-centric episode. Right. Ever since then, he's had this kind of like bland drive and focus on the GR that has made him a far less dynamic or interesting character. And also, it isn't really explained why he's focused 
on the GR, right? You know uh, why that's become his new crusade, or you know, is he? You know, at the end of his character-centric episode, it kind of shows this kind of switch has been flipped. You know, on the GR, you know, for for buying his church out from under him, but he's going about his revenge in a really weird, bizarre, serene way that belies some instability that you know is bubbling beneath the surface or at least was was hinted at in his character-centric episode. I wouldn't even say hinted at. Like, that was the nail on the head at the end of the episode. Like, his head looks like it's about to explode at right, the end of the episode. Right, And you don't get, like you said, you don't get a, even a hint of that throughout the rest of the right. series. Like, he is all smiles until the very end of the season. You know what I mean? Like, there's never once, like, a, maybe like a weird... Uh, sort of outburst no it just yeah. is like well he's he, good yeah he's he, cool for yeah the he of the becomes like really good and really cool i mean even when you know everything's going to hell at mapleton he's he, he's running and helping gr members you know yeah and so either the, the the gr thing has flipped him so far the other way where he's like insane but insanely nice you know like i feel like the polar opposite of him would be a serial killer. You know, he's gone like the <laughs> he polar could opposite. be a serial killer, right? But on the positive end of it, <laughs> like he's gone the whatever the positive of a serial killer is, he's on that end of the spectrum, right? Yeah, um, and all of that, the the and so the the Kevin running into the school to save Jill and Tommy, the story that he's. Uh, telling to Matt in the diner is then mirrored at the end of the episode or towards the end of the episode when he's running into the burning house and saving Jill. Yeah. Right. And so, and then you see them walking hand in hand at the end. So it's, and so we're kind of falling into the same path of, and look, maybe this is something the show's exploring. Again, I think you have to be very generous to say that. I think you have to be very generous to lean in that direction more than saying they just wanted kind of an upbeat ending but it's mirroring the same uh, imagery as him running into the school and saving Tommy and Jill. And then you're sort of getting getting this feeling of like, oh, everything, maybe not necessarily everything's better, right? But things are certainly better. And you definitely get the feeling of like, ah, Jill's now going to come around to her dad. You know what I mean? Where it's like, it's like we know, first of all, we know just from human experience that that's not how things operate, right? Like, you can have a near-death experience and it can change your perspective for a limited amount of time. But I would say after that limited amount of time, it takes a lot of really hard work to keep that frame of mind, right? And it may not make a whole lot of sense to people who haven't had a near-death experience, but it's not like it's not like a flip is switched. And I think that's even evidenced in the show, right? Because he has this, whether you want to call it near death experience or not, but you see three years later that even if he's had this, like I'm going to turn my life around sort of mentality three years later that has worn off. And now he's like losing his mind. You know what I mean? Um, So I don't understand like, and again, maybe these are questions that'll be answered in season two but I don't understand the point of if that, if that is what they're saying, Hey, he had this huge event. It changes his mind, but that's not really what needs to be changed because three years later, he's back in the same place. 
why are they then regurgitating that same idea at the end of the season and saying, oh, everything's better again or everything is at least taking a turn for the better, right? The dog walks up and it's now uh, domesticated, self-domesticated, right? Jill is happy again. It just seems... It just seems strange. I don't know. It just seems like it it seems I don't even know. It doesn't it just doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like it's following anything else from the show. Yeah, I I was yawning before, so I would have caught this earlier <laughs> and this is a little late. But you said flip is switched. I just wanted oh, sorry. Yeah, I just wanted if <laughs> anybody's listening. Flipped? Yeah. <laughs> he did say uh flip is switched. You don't have to go back and re-listen. It happened. Yeah. Uh but yeah, you know, I mean, I would, I would, I would argue, I guess, that, and I guess one of the critiques could be that Damon Lindelof did not do this in the finale, but I would push back against maybe your complete positive take or reading on the ending and say that maybe there are hints that thing things are not as bright or sunny as they seem and that there is at least reason to believe that you know season two jill and kevin jr are going to be dealing with a whole lot of crap still you know no and i don't think it's totally like everything's better now but it's definitely like they 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 are now united in a way that they were not before right? right like jill is holding his hand that's something that we never saw before the dog is a little heavy-handed in coming up um i i could have done without that but i think that that could pay off when season 2 starts and you realize they are now subverting all these positive you know, kind of pictures that they set up in the finale are now being subverted and everything that you thought and maybe they were hoping they're headed for. Yeah. It's not going to turn out that way. And there are a few things um, to make you think that. Um, one of them, I know we'll talk later on, is Patty in in Kevin Jr.'s dream, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and then also like Tommy and Lori, uh, where, where they're going at the end of the episode. Yeah. And then I would also say Nora, like Nora's little f- flip reversal at the very end to me does not seem like a totally positive thing. It seems like, again, somebody who who is taking their grief and maybe they understand it a little more, but they're ultimately now putting it on something and somebody else to help see them through in a way that can't be totally healthy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you don't just find a baby and go, yes, my purpose. Right. I am I'm Especially done. that baby. I mean, Especially right? Especially a baby, yeah. <laughs> Especially that 20-pound bowling oh, ball of a baby. Right, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, you, you just don't. So, you know, I would say, I, I would hope, and I would say, we won't know until season two, but I would hope that Damon Lindelof and the writers identify some of those things and are just, you know leading you down a path to then you know pull the rug out from under you in episode two or three or you know whatever early in season two that's my guess yeah because they definitely don't have a history of pulling the rug out from under you right right with episode nine or nope 
<laughs> it's all straight down the middle. Yeah. All right. Well, the last thing I'll say about grief, uh, and and we'll move on into more of a uh, not scene by scene breakdown, but it's just sort of maybe like the major plot elements of the show breakdown. But the last thing I'll say about grief is I feel like the show has, at least from my perspective, and I understand that that a lot of this is unfair, right? But I bring my own experiences to the show. And so when I read that this is a show about grief, I'm bringing my experience with grief to the table and I'm expecting to see a certain thing, right? And when I don't see that or if I don't feel like that's being delivered, it starts to strike me as false. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I feel like the show just has a kind of like an immature or underdeveloped idea of grief. And I feel like as even though that's what they've said the show is about, that they're not totally confident in that. And they, it feels like they're not confident in the strength of their characters. So they end up sort of peppering the shows and the season with these other sort of non-consequential characters that don't really mean anything, but they're making the viewers think like, you know, like who is this guy or what's going on here? You know what I mean? So you have like Holy Wayne, who was a huge part of the series, who had a fairly insignificant role in the season finale, right? Or you have Dean, who was a pretty big part of the series, who was not in the season finale at all. Or um, Kevin Sr., who is also a big part, at least of Kevin Jr.'s story arc, and he's not in the season finale at all, except for a sequence that actually doesn't happen, right? It's just as a dream, so it's totally inconsequential. So it just seems like... The sense that I get is that all of this stuff about grief and about these characters aren't interesting enough. So we need to throw in this... National Geographic magazine to make it more interesting, to make people like to draw people in, right? We need to throw in this, you know, maybe prophet, maybe miracle healer. And obviously he's not thrown in because he's from the book. You know what I mean? But like he plays a much more prominent role in the show than he does the book. So let's punch up his character, make him appear more so we can draw people in. You know what I mean? It just feels like it seems like a like a it just it just feels like they're not focusing on one thing and so that focus is being stretched out through all these different things which ultimately means none of them work that well right like is that the feeling you get or is that just am i being unreasonable you know i really get the sense that what damon lindelof jj abrams what they're about is trying to take genre stories and marrying them with real kind of heart and emotion or quote unquote character studies, which I think now we maybe are ready culturally for a new term than a character study. We need to come up with a new kind of uh, definition for it or even a new term for what people mean by that. Because a character study to me is meaningless. I've heard, you know, people be like, okay, on the on the surface, this may seem like a haunting, ghost haunting, an orphanage story. Right. But really, it's about what it's about right. 
is the characters. This is a character study of a woman. And you, you want to be like, no, this is about a creepy orphanage and about your lady running from room to room being chased by ghosts, you yeah. know, or, or whatever. And, and I think that we have to say, like, it's okay. It's okay to do that, you know? It's okay to be that. But I feel like this new school of thought is, you know, take those genre conventions, take a mystery, and then just deepen it, enrich it, and be about the characters. But it becomes this kind of odd mishmash or this kind of, you know, this thing that works against itself, you know? It's like the two snakes eating their own tail. Um, I forget, you know, what the Greek terminology is for them. It's on the tip of my tongue. Anyway. I have no idea. Uh, or yeah, the, the the snake eating its own tail, and it's like you know, you 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 end up working against yourself because you're not able to devote enough time and effort into both sides of the story mm-hmm. that you're trying to tell. So you get somewhere in the middle on it, you know. And with a TV show too, you have budget constraints, you have you know season you know constraints. You wonder how much they had of an actor to fill them out into a season or whatever, or how many other actors were like, I'll only do this if I get X amount of screen time or whatever. Um, you know, like the back scene kind of stuff that we, we don't know about, Yeah. but you know, does I think affect or can affect the storytelling. Um, you know, so I wonder, you know, on the show as a whole, when it's over, will we be able to say that it's about characters? But I would argue again, lost is a perfect example. They wanted to say that's about the characters. Lost is not about the characters. And I really liked Lost. I, I'll defend it all the way through. But it is about the mysteries. It's about, you know, the countdown clock. It's about, you know, and then the characters are in there and they really did try and flesh them out. And there are some great character moments. But you can't say that just because you have character moments, your story is about the characters. It's not, you know? And so the leftovers, I would say, it's not about the characters. It's not about grief. But grief and these characters are in this broader genre story, you know? Does that make sense? Does that distinction kind of make sense a little bit? Yeah. So I feel I feel like they are trying to, you know, in their hearts or maybe to themselves, they are probably saying the leftovers is about the characters. When really I read the book, didn't like the book. I'm watching the show, the show to me isn't about grief primarily. If you said Give me five words to describe it. Five different words. Grief would be closer to the bottom. Yeah. Like four or five. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I would say it's, and I've been holding on to this ever since you brought it up. (laughs) I would say it's less of a character study and more of a character browse. Uh. (laughs) Right? Like maybe like a character Uh, skim. A character skim, a character. (laughs) But one thing I did want to say. With all of with all of that being said, I don't disagree with you. Zodiac, Zodiac, is a three hour movie. Yep, one of my personal favorite movies of all time. The Zodiac movie with Jake Gyllenhaal, directed by David Fincher, three hours long, and I know more about that character and relate more to that character in three hours than I do with any of the characters that I've watched for 10 hours in The Leftovers. I know more about the very literal unsolved mystery of the Zodiac killings than I have (laughs) any idea of what's going on in The Leftovers. And a fictional world that's been created that I should at least understand something of what's happening. You know what I mean? Right. And that is a three-hour movie, right? right? And I'm not 
a detective, right? I have no experience uh, solving unsolved murder cases or working on unsolved murder cases, and yet I relate more to that movie and Jake Gyllenhaal's character in that movie than I do with the characters who are experiencing a somewhat similar grief to what I've experienced, at least, in The Leftovers. You know what I mean? And that's like... Like, I don't feel like I'm being unreasonable with my critiques of the show. It just feels like, for whatever reason, it's not working for me, right? And there are other people that is, like, like Alan Sepinwall loves the show. Yeah. Like, it's hitting on every single level for him. Yep. And I don't get it. Like, I don't understand. Why is that not working for me? There are people on Reddit who are just head over heels in love with the show. I just don't get it. Like, I don't get why I'm not, like, I feel like... I should, it's kind of like, and again, I realize now that this was a very unrealistic expectation to bring to Breaking Bad, but when Breaking Bad aired in like 2007 or 2008, right? Like the premise of the show was a, a average guy who gets cancer, who starts selling meth to pay for his cancer treatments, Right. And it was right around the time that either my dad passed away from cancer or he was like re-diagnosed. So it was like when that show started, I was like, I wouldn't say excited because that seems a little morbid yeah, maybe, but yeah. I was like intrigued to see what they're going to do with that. And ultimately, like that show's not, I mean, technically, yes, it's a, it's about a guy that gets cancer and starts dealing meth, but it's not, it's not about dealing with cancer, right? And that's what I was expecting going to, going into the show. And I feel like maybe I can bring, saying that now, maybe that's what I'm bringing to The Leftovers, where The Leftovers isn't about grief, right? But grief is kind of like, I mean, plot point seems a little cynical, but it's kind of, maybe it's just as like, it's just an element of the world. You know what I mean? Yeah. And where I was expecting like a really like truly in-depth examination no. of grief maybe or at least to be able to relate to the people yeah so we'll, we'll f- let's finish this up by saying uh what are your feelings on the episode in general on the finale and what did you think of this season uh you know i think i think both of them mirror each other really closely so i'll try and keep mine short because i think talking about this episode in particular um, I thought it had interesting ideas. Um, I do agree with you that tonally it's not, con- it's not a consistent show, mm-hmm. you know? And I was hoping that in the finale and even with the, um, uh, penultimate episode that it would bring some of these characters into greater relief for me in contrast and instead I really didn't and and so the emotion of the finale didn't really hit me Mm -hmm. I I was at no point emotional or being close to shedding a tear really yeah not even close not even close not even close uh and we'll talk about that later too okay uh but at the same time there was a lot that I was sitting back and admiring about this finale. Really? Yeah. Like I thought it looked beautiful. I thought yeah. it was shot beautifully. The house fire makes no logical sense 
None at all. There's literally no way he could find his daughter after a house had been burning <laughs> that long and have that many well, open and the, spaces. And the outside shots too, like fires shooting out of all the e- windows. Everywhere, <laughs> everywhere. And this has been on fire for a long yeah. time yeah. before he runs in there. And when he runs in, the first thing is like slow motion and it looks awesome in there. It looks great, but totally looks manufactured. It looks like a, a haunted house that I would walk through on, you know, someone would just be like, Oh, come into the burning house. And you know, it's all fake fire and whatever, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it really felt constructed. And so, yeah, it took me out of, of the, of the moment, but I thought it looked and, and was staged and shot well, you know? Um, that's how I feel about the whole episode. I think there are moments of it that are really well conceived and shot. Then there are moments where it just caves in on its own kind of, and that's, and that I guess is what's upsetting is that it has set up its own kind of world. It set up its own kind of characters and rationale. And then it falls in on itself because they didn't structure it well enough, you know? So like what we've talked about this whole season, you know, was Kevin Jr. the perfect husband or was he not, you know? And was Kevin Jr. ever not angry and and punching things and cursing at people, you know? Um, Like none of these uh, characters were developed deeper than what I felt I saw in the first episode. Yeah. So missed, missed opportunities to really, I think, make something transcendent. But what they made was something uh, that was good, that was always watchable. Um, you know, certain episodes more than others. But yeah. I could see myself going back and watching this whole first season again later on. Yeah. Eh. Not dreading it. Yeah, boy. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think... I, th- I think I agree with you in the sense that it's not, I don't feel like it's bad. I don't feel like it's a bad show. Yeah. It's definitely well made. But ultimately, and again, I don't know if this is because I was, you know, sort of self mandating sitting down after the show had aired and writing a sort of logical outline for right. us to talk about that made me feel so frustrated. But I definitely felt really frustrated after a couple of the shows. And and I think it it speaks to I think it speaks a little bit to how we consume media. Because we have very different approaches, right? Like like you are all about sort of watching and reading everything you you can, right? You want to experience a lot. Whereas I tend to be extremely critical and careful with what I choose to read and watch and play or whatever. And so when I'm watching something that I'm not 100% on board with, I'm thinking I could be doing, I could be, (laughs) I could could be playing Titanfall right now. Right. Uh, I could be playing Diablo right now. You know what I mean? Like, like I would much rather spend my time, putting an extra hour into the already 200 hours I've spent playing Titanfall than playing a show that I find to be good, but not great. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just because that's, I enjoy that experience more than I do 
watch like like and 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 for example like true like true detective was something that i i rewatched those episodes three or four times before the next one like i was hooked on true detective and there's no other way during that hour that i would have rather spent doing something else like during right. the 50 minutes that it takes to watch true detective i would have done wanted to do nothing else but watch true detective right. whereas during this show I guess I just wasn't compelled enough by the, by, you know, what I was mentioning before, the characters, whatever. So I think that plays a lot into, uh, not think, I mean, that obviously plays a lot into my take on the show. But like I said, I don't feel like it was bad. It just felt frustrating. And having to analyze it on this level and pull it apart so we can talk about it for an hour, an hour and a half was really frustrating <laughs> for me. It was really like taxing, like as, 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 you know, sort of privileged as that sounds, you know what I mean? Um, so it's hard for me to divorce those two sort of, you know, did I enjoy it on this just sort of like visceral enjoyment level or was I really upset with it because I had to do these things afterwards? You know what I mean? Because I, I was forcing myself to view it critically. With that being said, I think all of my critiques of the show are uh, defendable. I think, you know, they're valid. I don't think I'm just, you know, nitpicking for the sake of nitpicking. It just, I don't know. Just, it didn't read the, the season as a whole as what this, this episode, you know, it, it was, it was a, you know, it was just a looking glass for the rest of the season. It's just the same thing. Like I, I was frustrated by it. I felt like it's not consistent with every with the with anything else that they're telling me. And ultimately, like because I don't feel like I know any of these characters, like I just don't care what happens next. Like something I read, I don't know if it was a tweet or what that was just like the final shot of the finale is going to make you want to watch season two immediately. You know what I mean? Yeah, I did I not I feel that too. way at all yeah me me, me like, either I, I saw that too as soon as it was as it was over I was just like happy to have a break for <laughs> nine for months for for 12 months however long it takes you know what i mean it just was like i don't know yeah 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 i mean and i think again you, you talk about our kind of social media culture and you know what you've been getting from hbo and all that i i'm tired of of people tweeting like um, hyperbolic statements about shows oh, like it's that, so out of hand that, that was going on with breaking bad too like or like people get a sneak preview and they're like this final episode is just the most brilliant it, mind-blowing mind-blowing or the whatever greatest hour on tell like you know yeah. what I mean? it's just like i feel like if you're if you're first of all and this is way off track but like you can't declare something a masterpiece if it just came out, right? Like the whole idea of a masterpiece is that it has to be around for a really long time. And then you can say, wow, this was a masterpiece. Right. 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 And I think it's interesting, like the, like the tense that you use, you know, past. It's like this was a masterpiece. Enough time has elapsed for us to declare that this was. You can't say this is, you know, kind of present tense. You know, I, I just saw this and it is. It's yeah. like masterpiece always has to be past tense. Always yeah. like. Well, yeah, that was Godfather Part One and Two. Right, was a masterpiece. Was a masterpiece, right? At the time, and we just didn't. No one could see it because right. it was too too soon. Yeah, it, it, there's a weird there's a weird sort of predilection now for people to 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 
like one up their hyperbolic statements, right? It's yeah. just like who can effuse their love for this show more than the next person? Like, like, and again, this is something we'll talk about towards the end of the episode. But it's like, it's like, it's like the crying thing, right? It's like I this 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 made me teary. Well, this I was weeping out loud during this, and it's just like all right, right like. It just is like it just comes off as seeming, as seeming false to me. To, to to finish this rabbit trail, you know, is the worst kind of uh, language device used towards this end is are people saying one of two things. Both of these are equally bad in my book. One is this is everything. Have you heard everything used like that? No. Really? No. Oh, what do you mean this, this, is, this is episode. Everything. It's like you, you run out of words, language. Right. Huh. So the only thing you have to pull an adjective that isn't even really an adjective. It's everything. You know, that concert mm-hmm. was just everything. Right. Or people saying, I can't. Yeah. Have you you've seen that yeah, one? Right? Oh, yeah, of course. Um, Kevin, uh, Justin Thoreau in the. Uh, Right. The, the the leftover finale. When I the, can't. When the dog walks up to Justin Throw, I can't. I can't. Yeah. Oh gosh, yeah. those two. Those two. All right. Well, let's get into our leftover observations. And this is going to be a little bit more um, all inclusive than our other ones because we spent the first part just talking about the major theme of the show. So, leftover observations. First thing I noticed was the very first thing in the episode. Tom and Christine. Tom seemingly has absolutely no consistency in his actions or motivations from episode to episode in this show, right? In the first episode, he's completely head over heels for Christine. In the very next episode, he's like screaming his head off at her. In the in episode <laughs> eight, he's like ready to walk out on Christine and the baby and get rid of and just walk away from everything. And then at the opening of episode 10, he's like, Redevoting his life to her and this baby that's not his, in the face of, you know, realizing that he's ne- that they're never going to hear from Holy Wayne again. You know right. what I mean? Like, it's and again, you know, it it's just is it's basically the same complaint as I have with Kevin, but applied to Tom. It's just as like there's no consistency, which means you don't know who this character is. Right. Um. The second thing that you had written down was a question about Meg and her status in the Guilty Remnant. Yes. How did Meg ascend so quickly in the Guilty Remnant ranks? Am am I off base on this one? No, I agree. That is something I noticed too. Yeah, because I'm like, up up to this episode, we have not had one sustained episode where Meg does not do something that is literally counter to the purpose of the Guilty Remnant. I mean, not too long ago... She's the one trying to get everyone worked up about Matt, you know, and his in in his little protest against yeah. them. Yeah, and that's the thing too. Like, like up until episode eight, she's kind of just like pushing limits, kind of like testing things, right? And then the episode eight, you see her very blatantly breaking guilty remnant rules when she's screaming and she's talking and then she won't stop talking. And then mm-hmm. later in the episode, she is still talking. Right. <laughs> and then at and then the beginning of this episode and some of it too is just default, I think because she's Lori's left 
right hand woman, right? And Lori is now taking over. But it seems, but at the you see that she's basically taking the role of Gladys, Gladys, who halfway through the season we were, you know, it was a very distinct point that Gladys was was so devout that she was willing to be murdered by stones, right? Like. And now all of a sudden, uh, Meg is feeling like Meg, the woman who was just <laughs> talking her head off last episode, is yeah. saying this. It just is like, well, and and I wanted, you know, we we kind of talked about, you know, the blanks that are kind of the gr background before. I think we, you know, we we, we kind of mentioned them, and I do wonder. I I just wanted a cutaway scene when Meg's like, when she's like snapping at Lori. Oh, those snaps! Oh were man, driving those me noisy. They were annoying me <laughs> yeah. too. I was like, "How can Lori stay?" So I'd be like, "Oh, I would have that." Yeah, that new rule: oof. you can only talk to get someone's attention. No more of the <laughs> snapping. If you want them to just say their name, and that's it. Yeah, because that snapping was was out of control. But 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 also, she does the little like as soon as Lori nods, cuts to Meg like she does her little round them up like hand yeah. motion. <laughs> I immediately wanted to cut to somebody in the GR just like <laughs> rolling their eyes at Meg <laughs> or being like, yeah. oh, really? She, she, I guess she wants us to round up. Let's yeah. go follow Meg, <laughs> the girl who's, you know, weeks ago just screaming right. and not shutting up. <laughs> right? Yeah. Me, yeah. Meanwhile, we're surrounded by Guilty Remnant members. We've also been watching for 10 hours who haven't said a word. They haven't t- <laughs> they've been the ones who've been seemingly more devout than, than her. Yeah. There's yeah. a guy self-immolating himself in the uh, in the house. Yeah, that's right. There's a guy who's <laughs> who's willing to just let his body burn. Right. Um, I, I also want to cut of him when Kevin's rescuing Jill, and then we see him screaming and, and rolling around <laughs> trying to pull himself out. Right. Yeah. Like this was a bad idea. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is terrible. <laughs> yeah, and and speaking of that scene in the Guilty Remnant, there was some guy. In the guilty remnant house during that opening scene, who would not stop stop coughing? He was constantly coughing. Like every time somebody said a line, every time there was a break in between lines, you heard. Uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like whose direction? It, like you like look. You're following a group that doesn't say anything. Like just have the scene be silent for two minutes. You don't have to like. Add in some guy coughing in the background. What if that was the one kind of studio or HBO note that Damon Lindelof <laughs> got those season? HBO was like, look, great show. Those guilty remnant scenes, they're too silent. Yeah. Put in a guy coughing. Yeah. Put in a sneeze or two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It just is like, boy, like commit to this thing or not. Like you got to go for it. Like just have the scene be silent. It would be so much more powerful if there was just, if there was no noise at all. But instead it's just is like, Maybe it's just the little thing, but I noticed that the, on the first time I watched it and the second time, it's just like this guy won't like literally is coughing in between every single line. <laughs> um, and and again, the guilty remnant it brings us back to the same issue that we've had throughout the entire season. They are acting, they are making the only people in town who still remember the departure remember the de- you know what I mean. Their whole message is we're making them remember. You're acting against the only people who haven't forgotten, right? Like there is no person in that town who lost somebody on departure day who has forgotten about it. 
and and it's solidified with the with the loved ones, right? They are literally only antagonizing the people who lost somebody by yeah. setting up these loved ones figures, right? And I know I've said it before, and I'm not like trying to like evoke some kind of pity party, but like my dad died six years ago. And for the past six years, there's literally not a single day that I haven't thought about it. And I don't mean that in like a dramatic way, in like a way that's like where I'm like bawling my eyes out. But it's it's not something you forget, right? Right. It's not something like I'm never in my life for as long as I live going to need somebody to come up to me one day and be like, hey, your dad died however many years ago. You know, because I'm always going to remember that. Right. So it just seems it just again, it's weird that this the 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 message is weird. Well, the yeah. message is inconsistent. Yeah. It, well, that, see, to me, that's what drives me crazy about the guilty remnant is the inconsistency of their message, and that's one thing that that is the one of the biggest questions I have at the end of the season is: Do the writers know the inconsistency of the guilty remnant's message? Yeah. Are they aware of it, or do they think that they've adequately kind of justified why the guilty remnant's there and what they believe? Because that is a group of people who do not remember. You know, they are right. They are pushing on other people to remember. But Lori herself, right, is clearly not in a good place. Or else, at the end, she wouldn't be screaming, "Jill!" You know, and pointing to the house, right? Yeah. And she did not tell, you know, hardly anybody about the fetus that was you know, departed. And, you know, I wonder like, has she come to terms with that? You know? Yeah. It's just because she dresses in white and smokes and doesn't talk mean that she has adequately remembered her loss, you know? Right. I don't think so. No. I I think you, you bring this up like in your, I'm sorry if I'm jumping. No, no, no. But, but, but you made a really great point when you're like, does Lori get a, fetus exactly right does she get a loved one's fetus yeah because you know right everyone else that lost somebody gets a loved one's figure exactly you get one i i want i think that that would have been brilliant to have before they go out and do that to everybody else if they have a moment where each person who lost somebody in the guilty remnant is presented with their own like loved one lost one doll right and we get to see how do the guilty remnant then deal with it? Like, do they immediately turn and burn those? Do they bury them? Like, what what do they do? What do they want people to do with right. those? You know. Right. But you realize, and I think Kevin Junior's right when they stumble across Meg and the other lady who are bleeding. He's mm-hmm. just like they want to be hurt. Like that really is their message. So you felt that was a guilty remnant centric message and not just a Meg centric message. Yeah, yeah. I, I took that as like as like Kevin Jr. kind of adequately diagnosing the guilty remnant on like they're not about anything other than we want to feel something and we will do what it takes to have people make us feel. It's a selfish message you know ultimately and it's not about the departure like they're like they're pretending they're using the departure to project their feelings outward get responses and then you know hurt them it's a you know basic kind of masochistic you know seomasochistic yeah kind of desire yeah and and the la- the last thing i'll say about that what first me the most is is what 
at least what we know outside of Lori is like the people that have joined the guilty remnant haven't actually lost anybody. Right. Like in the departure, at least like Meg doesn't lose anybody in the departure. Her mom dies the day before, but Patty didn't lose anybody in the departure. We know Gladys didn't lose anybody in the departure. So it seems like, and, and look again, I, a generous interpretation could be later on in the, in the season, they have their reckoning of like someone confronts them on this. Like you don't know what loss is because you didn't lose anything, but you know, I think that's a stretch. I don't see it happening. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it just is. And, and if maybe that's the point, maybe it's not either way. It's frustrating. That, that you see. And, and I agree with you. That's why I want to see. I want to see one person just not scream at the guilty remnant, not like lose control, but literally just quietly walking up to a guilty remnant member or whatever and being like, here are the inconsistencies of your thought, right? Yeah, system. right. And just calmly like explain it to them and have a guilty remnant member like wrestle with it or question right on their little scratch pad yeah. and be like, why don't we do or why, do, you know, because they have to have questions. If if their training is really what Meg got, which is basically go chop down this tree and then we're not going to talk to you until you just kind of become Gladys. Yeah, <laughs> it just doesn't it doesn't make sense to me. I don't I don't really get it. Right. The next thing I want to talk about. In the in Cairo. Uh, when Kevin and Matt are in the cabin, uh Kevin and and Matt is reaching over to close Patty's eyes, right? Mm -hmm. Kevin says, if you, he says something along the lines of, if you touch her, we're in this together, right? And and what does Matt say? He says, then let's be in it and close. And so it's like, like, and, and this is what I was saying earlier when it's like, I feel like Matt, Matt's motivations have become like muddied and you don't, and he's no longer like, as clear of a of a character as you got in episode three, right? I it's agree like with that. like I thought he was like this by the book preacher, but then you start then he starts cursing throughout the series, and now he's covering up and at least from his perspective, alleged suicide that he knows nothing. Like he's literally helping Kevin bury the body of somebody who Kevin is telling him committed suicide you know what i mean like that's a really huge leap for a character to make well you know what one of my favorite moments of the episode was when matt drove him to the asylum in his dream and i remember thinking like there it is there's the matt the unpredictable oh you know he was working at another angle and then when kevin jr wakes up from his dream it's like there he is. Let's get something to eat. Let's get a you cheeseburger. Know? Let's get a cheeseburger. And you're like, oh, we're back to the placid, you know, like I got everything under control. Right. But it just is like, I mean, imagine someone calling you and asking you to bury a body. Okay, like, my eyes are like, closed. Reg- like regardless Imagining. of what they're saying the cause is, you're walking into a cabin where someone has died and the person you're helping is covered in their blood and they want you to just bury the body in the ground and forget about it. Like, like that's not, it's not treated as anything in this episode, right? For 
for a for a preacher to do that, right? Like like what it made me think of was um, sleepers. You remember sleepers? Oh my! I wrote a paper on the book sleepers. Yeah, where I actually used the term. I didn't know what what. Never mind. This is <laughs> this is not a a yeah relevant story. Well, I don't. I, I know sleepers extremely well. Yeah, I didn't that. read the book, but I've seen the movie. In the movie, yeah, oh, a yeah. ton of times because I love the movie. But towards the end of that movie, when Robert De Niro is being asked to lie in court, yeah, like I remember feeling like he's really like tormented about this, yeah. right? And that was something as seemingly simple, at least in the light of this episode, as just lying. Uh, and and even then it was kind of I don't remember because I haven't seen it for a long time, but it's kind of like an ambiguous lie, right? It's not like a is it a cut and dry lie, really? Yeah, he's you know he's he's covering for yeah. one of the one, uh, one of that's the right because that's right because he's like testifying to where they were. That's right. Okay, but even then, that all that is is lying in court, right? Kevin has just asked this preacher Matt well, to literally bury. A bloodied body in the woods and well, forget about it. That, that, that was Matt's idea, wasn't it, to bury the body? No, I, mean, I don't think Kevin, so. Because at first Kevin's like, "That's a crime scene. Don't, don't, don't touch her." Right. And he's like, and then Matt basically calmly walks through. Well, you brought her here, but you were trying to, you know, fix it, and yeah. she killed herself because she was trying to hurt you. He's like, "We need to take care of this." I don't well, I don't think they establish whose idea it is to bury her in the woods. Either way, but I mean, even so, even if if it is Matt's that even more so, that speaks even more to my point. If it's Matt's idea to just like, who is this guy? Like, this is a guy who at one point in the season was literally telling uh people that it wasn't the rapture by sharing dirty secrets who is now potentially suggesting they bury the body of a suicide victim in the woods and not tell anybody about it. Like what? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And this is also, I find it interesting that in his episode, one of the uh, clearest character moments we get from him is when he talks to his sister, Nora, and she basically tells him, give this up, you know, whatever. Uh, Maybe this is a good thing that you lose the church, you know? And he kind of, you know, loses it on her. He, he yeah. spoils the spoils the secret about her husband. But you don't get any follow up on that. Like, have they reconciled? Like, that would be that would be something I would think that would be worth the scene. Is like, yeah, Matt going back to Nora and being like, "Hey, Nora, you're right. I gave up the church. Life is great." Well, not you only know, that, or- Kevin is in a relationship with his sister. Right. Yeah. And there's no sense of that in the show of like, like, it doesn't seem like Matt. It doesn't seem like a Matt knows that his sister is in a relationship with Kevin. Right. And B, it doesn't seem like Kevin even knows that Matt is Nora's brother. <laughs> right? <laughs> like you have no exchange of that in the show at all. Right. Yeah. It just is like it seems like a strange oversight. Do we, um, do we even want to talk about oversights? What about, again, we, we kind of talked about this when it happened, but Tommy killing a government agent. Oh, exactly. Like, and didn't we talk about like Landry in Landry terms yep. of like, and they pretty much did like he's murdered somebody. Yeah. And for the rest of the uh, season, T- 
Tommy is way more conflicted about a million other things other than shooting a government right. agent point uh, blank. He's, in he's more conflicted face. about whether or not like the guy who gives magical hugs lied to him <laughs> than he is about shooting a government agent in the neck. <laughs> right. <laughs> and leaving him to die in the desert. Right. Um, the one thing that you had written down here is about Kevin's uh, flashbacks to remembering his family. Oh, yeah. This kind of goes to goes to your, your theory, too. Um, or not your theory, but but that listener's theory about this being a computer simulation. Mm-hmm. I just love the fact that there's a scene, and honestly, I can't remember in what context he was flashing back to remember, like, oh, when times were good with my family. But it's like a quick little cutback scene. Yeah. And what it cuts back to is literally a scene from the previous episode. And I'm like, does Kevin Jr.'s... <laughs> memory not go farther <laughs> than what we've seen like in this mm-hmm. season like you would think if he was reflecting on like oh yeah my family it's when he's telling the story to, right, to, right. to, to, to matt right? right he's like oh my family and all that that it would flash back to like that picture where like tommy's on his shoulders and apparently everyone was in love but yeah. no it flashes back to like the the party when things were really bad <laughs> right. and about to get worse. No, you know it literally I mean? flashes back to the party where he gives like a bullshit speech where he's he called where his out dad, by his dad calls him out for lying. <laughs> like <laughs> those were the times. Those were the days. You wouldn't flash back to a vacation you had. You guys didn't go some cool little beach or something, yeah. spend some time together. It just made me think, like, yeah, how how big of a sandbox is this show actually playing with? Because they're using the same diner. Kevin's thoughts are only extending to what we've seen in this show. Like, yeah, seems really like a shallow, shallow yeah. sandbox. Yeah. Uh, w- this is the question I had for you. And again, a question that I probably could have had answered on the internet, but you know, like on I the said, human internet, I was being, I was frustrated and I really <laughs> wanted to put as little effort into this as possible. Ask away. Um, the significance of the Job passage. Yeah. W- before they bury Patty, yeah. Matt hands him the Bible and says, read this passage. It's a passage yeah. from Job. And what is the significance of the, or, or did it, what significance did you pull from that? Yeah. And sub question, why was Kevin crying during that? Well, you know what? I'm going to say I wasn't emotional in this uh, episode. That scene was the closest I got. To was being, it really? Yeah, wow. To, 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 to being emotional. Um, you know, to me, I thought it was a really succinct kind of take from Matt on the situation that everybody's in, you know, mm-hmm. where it is a lament, you know, of somebody who has been, you know, rejected by God. And you have, again, in the diner, what does Matt, not Matt, but what does Kevin finally reveal about himself? Mm -hmm. Is that he knew, he knows why they were left behind. And it's like, because they deserve this. But even then, Matt says, that's not the the reason. Well, yeah, Matt doesn't think so. But this is exactly how um, Kevin is reading this situation. And I think his emotional reading of it shows you how close Matt gets to the heart 
of him. And it is, but, you know, and then at the end, you have this refrain of hope. And I think it shows as Kevin gets more and more upset by by reading the passage or moved. And as he says right before he reads it, where he says, I don't believe, you know, he starts reading this passage, is that that verse then ends in hope. You know, that even in all this darkness, I do not lose, you know, my, my, my hope, basically. Yeah. And Kevin Jr. has lost it, kind of, you know? So I, I just took it as a, as a diagnosing of Kevin Jr. in that, in that moment. And I think, I think Matt is trying to diagnose Patty as well. Mm-hmm. I think he's trying to say, like, you are people who feel, you know, rejected and left and turned away from. But there's hope, no matter how dark it gets. Mm-hmm. And Patty couldn't see it. And Kevin Jr., you know, can't really see it, mm-hmm. I think, in, in Matt's eyes. And Matt's trying to trying to, to address it. Yeah. That kind of answers my next question, which I, I thought it was a strange... I thought the dialogue exchange was weird. Yeah. When, Matt's, or when, when Matt offers him the passage, Kevin says he's not going to read it because he doesn't believe it. And then yeah. Matt says, I'm sure did she, Patty. she didn't either. Yeah. Like... I don't understand what the implications of that is. Like see, she didn't believe it either. So she committed suicide. Like, no, no. Yeah. See, to me, it, it stood out as well as saying like, again, Matt is diagnosing the guilty remnant. Yeah. They are not a people of belief, you know? Yeah. Like they are hurting lost people just like Kevin is They're They're doing it in a different way though, you know? And I think Matt is again, like, trying to diagnose both of them in that in that moment, whether or not you believe his diagnosis yeah. is right. I would I would say, yeah, he was. The guilty remnant, maybe even Patty, would try and paint themselves as people of belief. But of what? You know? They're not clear on that. We're not clear on that. Yeah. And it's clearly not in the Bible, not in any real sense, even if they think it's the rapture. Yeah. They're they're by no means living by the tenets of you know, the Christian faith in what they're doing. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how I took it. Yeah, I I guess. Yeah. And that makes sense. And I think even at that early stage, I may have checked out to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, but the, the, for whatever reason, that line of dialogue, it just is a very similar exchange as like, like, um, as like, uh, I feel like a parent like telling their kid not to text and drive. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure that person didn't think texting and driving was wrong either, right? Like, as they're like standing outside of a car crash, or whatever. Like, it right. reminded me of like the scene in Freaks and Geeks, right, where they're at dinner and the dad is like, "I had a friend who smoked cigarettes once, and now they're dead, right? Yeah, and everything yeah. was, and now they're dead. That's what yeah. it reminded me of. It yeah. just seemed like a weird, like." punctuation to that right. exchange. This is this is something weird that I didn't even bother to write down or think about until we started talking about this scene. So I figured why not just throw it in here. Uh, when they start to bury Patty, Kevin goes really hard and kind of, you know, throwing the dirt back on her. Uh-huh. But I noticed that out of the huge pile of dirt that they have, it looks like he like <laughs> digs a hole back into the ground to get dirt from. <laughs> I just imagine him like not 
knowing how to refill a hole. And so he just digs another grave-sized <laughs> hole <laughs> next to right. Batty and just uses that dirt to fill in. Right. And they're constantly just redigging. Just right. redigging holes. Yeah. Um, next thing I want to talk about, Kevin's dream sequence. It struck me as... I would say uh, what I had written down is it struck me as like an interesting and unpredictable turn in a show that has been fairly uninteresting and predictable. What did you think of the dream sequence? Really quick before I lose this train of thought, I wanted to say, did, did this strike you? That was a dream sequence, right? And towards the end, when you start to realize that this is maybe a dream sequence... I immediately started to think, I'm like, they're in a car. Like, based on what he's done in his other dream sequences, when he wakes up, they have to be, like, flipped over. He's holding an Uzi. He's just mowed down, like, 30 strangers, you know? But then when he wakes up, apparently he's just been quietly laying there, not doing anything. Or I was like, yeah, he has to be tied up because he's probably going crazy in the real yeah. world. No, Matt is not. Matt is so undisturbed he can only think about cheeseburgers. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And so it made me think, like, well, what was different from these <laughs> other like this is one of the most vivid dreams he's ever had, and he didn't move. Mm-hmm. And based on the previous dream, he went and kidnapped Patty. Yeah. Got Dean, took her to a to a hut and beat her. Yeah, there wasn't even a line of like where Matt's just like Man, you were like, what was your dream about or whatever? He was just like, you want some cheeseburgers? <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, he was down. He kept reaching for the wheel and I guess <laughs> trying to drive us off, but it was really yeah. half-hearted. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Having said that, um, yeah, at, at first, like I said, it excited me because, number one, I thought, oh, here's the unexpected, right? Right. Like, this is unexpected, and this is not unexpected in the sense of, we're going to answer the, the the what the departure is, which I agree from the beginning. We said we're not as interested in that as we are in other things. So I'm like, oh, here's an interesting turn, and we are we are finally taking his insanity literally and for real. Yeah. yeah. As soon as he gets dragged in, I was looking for a name on the asylum, on the building when he was being dragged in. I didn't see anything, and when he wasn't like processed or anything, I started thinking like. Okay, something's wrong here, mm-hmm. you know. And then when he got the magazine, I was like, "Oh, this <laughs> isn't starting to add up." And then by, by by the time he's like, you know, in the room with his dad and Patty shows up, I'm like, "Dream sequence." Yeah. And so it was it was a slow diminishing of my excitement for that scene until it culminates in, you know, like the ridiculous. Yeah. Straddling. Yeah. And you know what? I have to I have to say, like, that was a really disappointing yeah. addition in what they did specifically. And also with how it was carried out. Like it made me when she got on top of him, the way that she acted that scene, I wanted to be like, is this one of those dreams where he's gonna look down and be pantsless? <laughs> like she is like having sex yeah. with him. Yeah. But I'm like, they're both close. She's just sitting on yeah. his lap. Yeah. Like you know, I don't think that they're having sex, but she's like shuddering and like slowly moving up and down. And I want to be like, this is just, yeah. I think it's just there just to be there. Right. Or, or, or maybe like to tie her to how deep she is now embedded in his psyche. That she's like really melding herself 
to him in a way that he won't be able to easily extricate her from him. Well, that's what bothered me so much about it is, and, and, and I was on board with that whole sequence. I didn't think anything was up in terms of like thinking it was a dream sequence until she started straddling him. Because at that point, because at that point, it's like everything up until that point had had some basis in the previous episodes. Right. Right. You've got the National Geographic. You've got the idea that Kevin might be crazy. You've got Kevin Sr. talking to voices. And then out of nowhere, you get this like weird sexual tension between Kevin Jr. (laughs) and Patty. She's like, that doesn't exist in this show. Like. That's never been a thing that has happened. You know what I mean? And next thing you know, she's like straddling him and kissing him and talking about like, isn't she, she says something about deep maybe? I can't remember, but she's saying like very like, um, suggestive, suggestive words. And it's just like, this is, this is just like hot. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I mean, I don't want to say stupid feels harsh, but it just is like, this is like, this is dumb. Like, this is like, you just like at that moment, I remember thinking like, is this where the show jumps the shark? You know what I mean? Like it was too much. I feel like you, you can keep that sequence, a dream sequence, but have Patty start talking about, you know what she was talking about before she killed herself. Like Kevin understanding something or some sort of like deeper meaning or whatever. And that even as a dream sequence, that whole thing would be a lot more uh, intriguing and would have a lot more resonance than it does with the way they ended it. It just was like disappointing to me. Or go full MacGruber and have a scene where he's apparently making love to somebody that he's imagining is there. And then somebody in real life just sees a guy (laughs) having sex with the air (laughs) being like, What's that guy up to? Uh, Yeah. Uh, But that is followed by them, uh, Matt and uh, Kevin, eating eating in the same diner as um, Patty and Lori. And again, I know we talked about earlier, but it's one of those things where it feels like it should have some significance to it, right? But it seemingly doesn't. It just ends up being like a strange coincidence, you know, like um, what it what it kind of reminded me of. And again, this is being very generous is um, Paul Auster. Right. (laughs) And pretty much anything I talk about on a critical level, I'm going to try and relate back to Paul Auster. But. Paul Auster has this this idea that drives a lot of his books and a lot of his stories about um, what he calls rhyming events. And it is kind of, um, it's, it's more or less the idea of chance or coincidence, right? So like, just like strange things happen. Like you notice strange things in the real world that are directly mirrored by other things that happened in your life, right? And yeah. one of the stories Paul, uh, Auster likes to share is, he was dating a girl, and this girl, as a kid, grew up with a pa- with a piano, right? And the, their piano had one specific key that did not work. And um, 
as he, while he's dating this girl, they go on vacation somewhere. They're exploring like a ban- an abandoned building. They find a piano and all of the keys work except for one key. And it's the exact same key that didn't work on her piano as a child. Right. And it's just like, it's one of those things where it's like, it just is like a weird coincidence, right? There's no larger meaning to it, but there are these like small things that kind of continually happen in our lives. You know what I mean? That if you're like paying attention, you notice or whatever. So it's like, I, again, I think that's a generous interpretation of it, but I feel like if you're crafting a story and you're like purposely picking these locations, it's either like, like this is, they're like, there's only one diner, like, that's in a 50 mile radius. That's like 50 miles outside of Mapleton and every single person goes to this diner. Or maybe they're saying something about chance or coincidence. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, what's the point of this? And there's no indication in the dialogue. Like, and even the dialogues don't mirror. Like, I was thinking, okay, they're in this diner. Maybe their conversations are going to be similar, right? But they're not really, right? Or am I missing something? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm gonna uh, refer you back. Not sure if you're listening every time I'm talking on this podcast, mm-hmm. but to to my grand unifying theory of this is why I believe that this is a supernatural event that in right, this no, in this yeah. universe is a being that is in some ways active in these events because why else would you have all these people coming back to the same places? Not only do they eat at the same diner, but guess who's dying in the bathroom? Holy, Holy Wayne. Wayne. Right. You know, and it's like, so are, are we literally thinking that are these just more events to throw in the chance pile and be like, yeah, just a whole lot of luck is going on after this departure. Yeah. Or are we saying like, this is some grand, and again, it could be the writers as God, the writers are just really tipping their hand and being like, look, we're putting everybody together and there's literally no reason why they should be. We just think it's cool. Yeah. Or is it like, nope, there's some orchestration going on here. And like I said before, I kind of get the feeling that everybody who's responding to you know, voices or like even Patty, they're tuned into the same wavelength, but they're getting different messages. Or in some ways, I think in his dream, Kevin Jr. perceives Kevin Sr. and Patty as kind of angel and demon on his shoulder. You know what I mean? That you have this kind of good force and this kind of bad force, but they're all kind of tuned into this supernatural wavelength. So you have the Antichrist and you have you know, the Christ idea, yeah. you know? Um, and if I had to, at this early stage, say that Kevin Sr. seems to be on the quote-unquote good side and Patty, I'd put on the not good side. Um, so yeah, that, that was kind of my take on those whole things because yeah, if that's not the explanation, then this is totally a budgetary thing, you know? Yeah. Or they're like, go look at the real Mapleton. There really is only one diner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we just really did our homework. Right. <laughs> I guess that's a possibility. But like, yeah, and like you said, um, in the diner, uh, Kevin finds Holy Wayne, who is suffering from, I guess, 
uh, being shot in the stomach. Oh, he was shot. I didn't yeah. notice that. <laughs> you don't really know, but I am assuming he's been shot in the stomach yeah. and then fleed to this Fled. diner and somehow not trailed blood throughout the entire thing <laughs> despite pooling he's, blood in the well, stall. Well, he's holding his intestine. <laughs> yeah, and in. that's the thing. It looks like, like I'm thinking... We have to know what happens to Holy Wayne, right? Because it looks like he's, it looks like his intestines are literally falling out of his stomach and he's holding them in with his hands. Well, yeah, and that's, and, and I want to use this as a chance to plug. We've, we've done this only once before, but uh, if Damon Lindelof is listening, which there's good reason to believe <laughs> he is, uh, you know, I would have had Holy Wayne, you know, when uh, Kevin pushes the door open, just be like, don't order the lasagna. <laughs> <laughs> and then talk about dying. Right. But that's that's what I would have brought to this yeah, writing that's team. not bad. Yeah, it's not yeah? bad. Yeah, I like it. But uh, so uh, this, is, this is the question I had after everything. After the granting the wish, you know, f- I get, and w- I guess we'll talk about this. But this is what I feel like is the most important question. Is this the end of the Holy Wayne storyline? And if so, what was the point of Holy Wayne? <laughs> well, yeah, and, and I love that that Holy Wayne doesn't hear the hear the um, wish. Like, what right. if Kevin stands up and Kevin has a tail, and Kevin's like, "That was <laughs> not my wish, you idiot." I didn't wish to have a tail. Right. <laughs> Holy yeah. Wayne's like, oh, I got it. <laughs> yeah. You want tusks. <laughs> Granted. <laughs> um, yeah. No, yeah. I, you know, Holy Wayne, so so really quick, I, I just want to um, jump over into the book and say, as a final wrap-up episode for our podcast and everything, um, <clears throat> you know, this show had some of the same problems I had with the book. You know, with the book, um, Holy Wayne uh, is done a long time ago. He's in jail, statutory rape, cut and dry. He's he's done. Yeah. So they are extending his character, and his character could be done, you know? And if he is, the I only... I mean, he's obviously done in the sense that he's dead. He's dead. But what I mean is, like, are they revisiting... You know what I mean? Are they revisiting the the... Story? Are they revisiting like who he was at all? Yeah. Okay. So, in yeah, in the book, they don't. You know, we 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 don't gain anything more. Um, and in the same way that that you don't understand Holy Wayne, that's my problem with the book. You know, is that can you imagine if this really was it? If this was like all the answers you're ever going to get, and not only did they say, "Oh man, well we had a season two. But they were like, nope, that's our story, right? Like, that's how I feel like the book. Towards the end, it ramps up. It ends with Tommy leaving the the, the, the baby on the doorstep. Mm-hmm. But also, the whole time, you're like, this kid is a rich kid. He has a dad who loves him. All he has to do is go home. And guess what? He's looked after. Mm-hmm. You know, he could be like, this is my friend. This is her baby. Kevin's going to be like, come on in, son. Welcome home. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yet, that's like never an option. Oh, I, I can't go home. You know, mm. it's like, why not? I don't understand you. Yeah. I don't understand the decisions you're making or why that's out where you abuse. That's not hinted at in the, in the show yeah. or story. And so Holy Wayne, you know, um, I think that he will be in season two. 
Mm-hmm. I think that they will go back and show you how he was shot. I think his um, gun. I think his wish granting will will you know um, be, be, become a storyline. Obviously, that they'll follow through in season two. And I think people will still debate whether or not he's a fraud. You know, but I think for all intents and purposes, I don't have much interest in him as a character anymore. Anyway, yeah. You know, do you? Would you want them to continue that storyline? I don't. I mean, I I guess not. And I guess this is why I'm not a television writer. You know what I mean? Like, I kind of. I'm not that interested in Wayne's storyline, but at the same time, I feel like if this is the end of him, like. Who, like I don't even know what question to ask. Well, yeah. all I know is I have questions. You know what I mean? Well, like, it, who is he? What it, is he? Like, yeah, it's the end of him, but it's not the end of his message. Yeah, you know what I mean. He's still got those kids around. He, you know, granted a wish. Who knows? But what that, yeah, and that's the thing. Like, I'm not, I'm not particularly interested in them exploring the intricacies of his magical hugs wish, or wish granting. Wish granting. But I still, I guess, I I still feel unsatisfied if this is his, if this is his exit from the show, mm. right? You know what I mean? Like, like I said, I don't care for them to ever again address whether or not his hugs were real. Like, I have my opinion on that, and I'm fine with that opinion. I don't think it needs to be brought up in the show or explored in the show, but like. I still, I don't know. I, I just ultimately feel like, I feel like his ending is kind of a cop out. You know what I mean? Like I said, like I was saying before, I feel like his introduction and him playing such a heavy hand in the show, like you have to think about all of the things that he ties in with, with all of these other episodes. Like, like at one point the show was intimating that his baby could be the antichrist. <laughs> Right. Like <laughs> this can't be his end to the show. Well, yeah. It, I mean, I guess this is what I'll say too. Uh, given the, the biblical version, uh, the antichrist receives a mortal wound that he is healed from. Mm-hmm. I think some people think it's a wound to the head mm-hmm. is what some people speculate. So if we're talking end times, rapture, tribulation, there is actual, you know, kind of spiritual precedence to returning from, death do you think that that do you think this show could bring anybody back from the dead do you think that's even a possibility i hope not and so you wouldn't even want holy wayne to be somebody no. who like Mm-mm. comes back from a mortal wound no even if he is linked to the antichrist <sighs> prophecy no no because i don't want the show to be i and this goes back to what we said before i don't want the show to I want the show to be about grief, right? I don't want the departure to be explained as the rapture, even though I th- I do think that's the path they're going down. Yeah. You know what I mean? But even hearing you say that, like like the idea that Holy Wayne could come back from the dead or re- reappear again later in the series, like is there anything more Lindelofian than that? Yeah. Right, I, I I agree. I don't think they're going to do it, and I wouldn't want them to do it anyway. I was just trying to gauge your interest in terms of Holy Wayne as a character, because I mean, yeah, you know, given what you're saying, what your approach is, I think that you, I think 
he's done. Yeah. You know, obviously he's dead. Yeah. As a, as a character, anything that we get is going to be in flashback. But I mean, I think they could answer some of those in flashbacks. Yeah. And with that being said, I am glad Christine is gone. Right. Like Ooh, so good riddance. I. Yeah. <laughs> um, and before we move on quickly, because I know a lot of people are probably thinking about this. Kevin's wish. Any ideas? There seems to be a pretty solid consensus of what his wish of what his wish was. What did you think it was? Is there or, a consensus on Reddit or whatever? I think so. Like, uh, yeah, just in general, I would say. And I I read the Hit Fix and the um, AV Club review. Oh, and, and do they speculate? I, I honestly I can't remember. I just yeah, know that I, I, everything I read assumed the same thing. Okay, well. Honestly, I have not read anything. Mm-hmm. My assumption is that it has to do with his family. Yeah. Because that's that that's what he's been talking about a lot to kind of reunite or bring his family back together. Or like that's the title, right? Prodigal son, you know? Yeah. So I mean, the whole story of the prodigal son is, you know, he leaves his family, he returns, and you know, they, they are now together again as a family unit. And so that's what he, that's what he wants. That's what he seemingly wants more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. And I think mostly what I read was, yeah, uh, he he wants his family or a family maybe. And so by the end of the episode, you see he's got Jill. He's got the dog that they were looking to adopt before the the departure or, you know, a dog. Mm -hmm. He's got Nora. And he's got the 20-pound baby who isn't his, which represents Tommy, right? Who was a child that wasn't his. So You, you, know, what, you know what annoys me? Um, in this episode, they made it really clear when he washed himself off yes. after Matt came to show the bite on his hand. Yeah. I, I am now upset thinking about that, that they didn't, Resolve that little mystery. Well, I'm, I'm assuming it's the dog, right? It's the well, dog it, that he tried to. I I read somebody, and this is interesting because I was looking at the I was looking at the bite again. And it, it looks like human, human right? It seems and, human, and, and that's the thing. That's the thing that we're talking about before is like how much of the show is meant to be dissected. How, how much of it is we want you to notice this, and how much of it is just a a you know, production assistant being like, this is good enough. No, they they want, in my estimation, they wanted you to see that bite. I mean, it was front and center. I don't think they were thinking like, is this a dog bite or is this a human bite? Really? Yeah, I don't think so. I think that is a dog bite and that's it. But the thing that bothered me about that is they very purposefully mirrored that with Tommy being shot in the hand, right? In that episode, but you don't get any like, like you don't get any sense that Tommy like right. he has a bullet enter his hand. Like that seems a little bit more um, drastic than a dog bite, and yet we're not seeing like gun like bullet wounds on Tommy. Like he doesn't seem like his hand doesn't seem un- encumbered at all. So I thought that was that I thought of that. Moving on, uh, the next thing I had written down: Mayor Lucy made a terrible what i felt like a terrible appearance in this episode when she says something like you were right you were right kevin you were, and it's just as like yeah like no shit we get it like 
We knew he was right from the moment you said that you were arguing with him in episode one. Like that, that, that like moment and that bit of dialogue felt so unnecessary to me. And it was just like, we know he's right because as you're saying it in the background, there are like three or four houses that are literally on fire. (laughs) Right. And it, and it does make me think like, is this really like, would the mayor just come out to wander dumbly through the, vicious yeah. crowds yeah and just be like oh hi kevin yeah you were right yeah yeah um where does she live yeah. yeah last couple of things this this is this was just something i noticed as you said earlier kevin enters a house that is has been on fire for so long that people have died from asphyxia uh, from asphyxiation right yeah smoke like inhalation. there's there's a guy in the corner who's letting himself burn to death mm-hmm and yet, as he's as he enters, there's some idiot wrestling a GR member, like in the house that's burning down. Right. You know I mean, like, is this guy really that committed to the cause of like beating up guilty remnant members that he's willing to die in a house fire? Right. Well, and it also made me think like, um, this it was a woman, like he he's attacking a woman. Right. Kevin gets him off of her, and then like just keep searching and i'm like she's literally 10 feet from the front door what if she can't get there yeah you know like wouldn't you help her <laughs> like a little more yeah drag her to the door make sure she gets out yeah no and that's th- that's the big question that's the thing that i was thinking about like as he's going through this house there are people everywhere so it's like I guess the 30 other people in this house are just going to burn to death. Well, yeah, yeah. Can I, can I say, you know, I would, I would love now I'm thinking of like an airplane esque like spoof. Yeah. But where your hero goes into like a tough situation, like all hell's breaking loose and they're bad guys attacking good people. And he just comes up and like, will punch a bad guy, but not help the good guy anymore. <laughs> right. So the good guy still ends up dying, but he just like helps him for a moment. And he just keeps going around, like, helping 30 people halfway, but then either more people attack them or, like, maybe, yeah, it's on fire. Yeah. It's like the fire just starts getting worse. You see people burning behind him. Yeah. But he's just like, I'm kind of helping, you know? (laughs) And, like, as he goes on his quest. (laughs) Yeah. He beats the bad guy. The bad guy's like, you know, literally you killed 100 people getting to me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You did not save anybody. (laughs) Yeah, you got me. Right. But you literally <laughs> right. If you look at like the equation of this, right, you're pretty far in the negative. It's way, it's way. <laughs> hey, I'll go happily arrest me. Right. But uh, yeah, you killed a thousand people. Yeah. Um, all right. The last two things I want to talk about. The first thing we talked about a little bit earlier. In my, like I said before, after the episode was over, there seemed to be a little bit of a game of one-upsmanship of like, when did you start crying? So my. Initial question of which you've already answered is like, did the show make you emotional at all? Right. And you said you came close during the Job reading. Yeah. And and, not, and like it wasn't like I was tearing up. But I was right. like, it this resonated. Is a, this is a really beautiful moment. Yeah. Like, like this is this is something that I wish I had the faculty to think and say mm-hmm. in this moment. Like, to, yeah, to sit there and be like is a beautiful powerful passage of like being spurned and overlooked and saying in the face of that like 
I'm still here. I'm still yeah. committed. Yeah. It's a, it's a Job esque kind of you know response. Yeah. Yeah, I and I think that's interesting. Um, but for me, and I and this is something I want to talk to you about. I don't know how rel how relevant this is to anybody that listens to the podcast. I guess it depends on whether or not you have kids, right? But the scene that got to me against my oh man, you did get emotional. Eh? I got emotional. Now I would say I would get emotional. But, and that, that comes with a very big caveat, as I'll explain a little bit later. But the scene that got to me is when he goes in and rescues Jill, right? And he mm-hmm. comes out with his, and, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I have two daughters who That's are obviously extremely young. You know, they're two and one years old. They're nowhere near Jill's age. But for some reason, right, that stuff gets to me now. Yeah. Like, as a, as a father, and I was wondering if you felt the same way, and, like, the best example I, I, w- I, w- I can give of recent memory, and this is why I'm giving <laughs> absolutely zero credit to the leftovers on this, is there's a Google commercial, right? <laughs> Where at the end, they're like, he's like, they're like, it's like a clip of people saying, okay, okay, right? And they're asking questions. And at the very end, it's like a little girl who's saying, okay, Google, do dogs dream, right? And like, I've got a little girl, I've got a dog, I've got a dog who I've had for 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm very close to my dog too. And it's like that commercial makes me emotional, right? And I'm not talking about like crying, right? But like as it happens, I'm like, man, I'm like feeling all these things and I'm like, I'm I'm getting very emotional. Your Grinch heart is growing. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So it's like, I was just, so I was wondering if that translated to you because you are a father, right? You have, but you have a son. Mm -hmm. So it's like, do you think that's just a case of like, and, and two, to just to go a little bit deeper into this, like my dad, like I, my dad was a firefighter, right? So he had weird hours. Mm-hmm. So like sometimes during the middle of the day, maybe during the summer or on the weekends or whatever, we would go out to the movies and I would always, every single time we watched the movie, I would notice him like cry, like not like bawling, but like crying or like getting emotional during certain parts that involved like a son or whatever. And I always thought like, man, this is so weird because my dad is like one of those like, um, stoic, right. He's very stoic. He's like, um, he's like red from that 70s show. Right. He's just like very dry, seems to be very like, disconnected from everything. You I know didn't I mean? know you were that 70s show <laughs> fan. I wasn't a huge am, fan. You haven't seen it that much? No, I don't know oh, who Red okay. is. Red's the, is Eric's father, right? Okay. He's the main character's father. I know, I know who the, yeah, from... And uh, he's basically like the typical, like... Dead Poet Society. Like raised from, right, raised from the 50s, like hard ass, like, you know what I mean? Just mm-hmm. like military kind of guy. And so I see that happening to me now in like the very worst scenarios, like a Google commercial, like that's the last thing I want to be affected by a Google commercial. Right. But regardless, it is. So I was wondering if you had those same feelings, like if that stuff resonates with you at all, if not, do you think maybe it's just like, like does the Tommy stuff resonate with you? Because yeah, I mean, honestly not with Tommy and I'm not here to dump on him or his acting, but it really is, I think his character and acting doesn't speak to me. But yeah, I totally, I have a great, if this was a different podcast, I would 
immediately launch into my story of what got gets me emotional. And it, and there are certain things that do. Yeah. But it does correlate to boys, I think. Yeah. And it's because right? Yeah. Okay. Mine mine is a son. I think yours is yep, yours is a girl. Girls. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I thought that was um so that was the one moment that I was like despite myself, I was just like man, I can't this is kind of getting to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. But other than that, like I said, I, I feel like a lot of people I, I feel like people are just looking as like they're going into it thinking I'm gonna cry. Right, right? Like I need to be affected by this. And so it become and look. I'm not trying to judge anybody. Be affected or don't. Yeah. Be just be honest about it. Just be honest. All right. Last point. Nora. We haven't really talked about Nora that much. Snora. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> what is going on with Nora at the end of the episode? Yeah. Like how did you take that? The the one line that stood out to me that made it interesting was when she was like, "Wish me luck. I'm going to need it." In her letter, you in mean? her letter, mm-hmm. it made me think that this isn't just somebody who's moving to a different town. Yeah, you don't need luck, and and to be like, "Wish me luck. I'll need it." It's like she seems to be kind of financially stable. She will probably just move to a town, and what? Work as a barista. I don't know. You know, she doesn't seem to have a lot of overhead. It's not like, you know, she's paying down a boat. Yeah. And and, and whatever. So, I mean, to me, I felt like, does that mean that she's willing to go on like a quest? Like, is she going to go kill somebody? You know, like, yeah. Like, is this like her being like, I can finally move on once I do this one thing? shotgun cock you know and like and it shows like putting one bag in her trunk you know yeah like i'm like it kind of made me think like is this lady now going out on some kind of a of a mission like she's going to go kill the 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 founder of the gr you know internationally like whoever that first person was you know because it didn't seem like it was just like you wish me luck i'm gonna need it when i move to florida and live by the beach. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it seemed like you'd be yeah, and, and, and it was really confusing to me because I remember, like, as the scene played out, at first I, I thought, like, and, and, I'm, and I'm talking about the scene that opens with her holding hands with the loved ones figures, right? Yeah. At first I thought, okay, she's going to... I thought she's going to kill herself. Oh, really? Yeah. See, I, I never thought that at all. I thought she's going to actually use this as, like, a catalyst to move even further in her progression towards happiness, maybe. Right. And then as she started writing the letter, I thought (laughs) she's going to be like a total hermit psychopath (laughs) who lives in her house. Don't ever come here. Right. With the loved one figures and like starts like treating them like they're alive. Right. Okay. And I thought like that is, would be a really like interesting turn for the show. Oh, dude, I honestly, I don't know what it is, but that is a really unsettling. Like, right now I'm imagining, can you imagine if you're walking by a house and yeah. it's just like, oh, yeah, that's the lady who got the GR dolls. <laughs> right. And, and now she broke li- her completely. It broke her completely. Right. And you can like see her in her window, like dragging a doll up yeah. to the children's room. Dude, I'm just, I'm really freaking my, yeah. is this freaking you? Like, 
I'm like getting <laughs> it's creepy though. Like I felt like that would have been a really interesting turn. But then like you said ultimately they kind of settle on I don't really know. Like I guess she was planning on leaving town. Like they show her putting the dolls in a bed and covering them with a sheet. Like I just don't get, I don't understand what she's doing. And then they show her packing a bag and then going to deliver the letter to Kevin and then finding Christine and Wayne's baby. Right. And in and, and putting them underneath the sheet, that would really speak to Kevin. I think you'd really. <laughs> oh, yeah, there they are. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess to Kevin, that would just mean that they disappear, right? Like, that's how you hide from somebody. <laughs> you just get underneath the sheets. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that was, I was a little, con- but I guess, and you talked about a little bit about it earlier is, Maybe this is a, a jumping off point for season two where Nora is now all of a sudden sort of like transposing all of her issues onto this baby. Mm-hmm. And instead of accepting her grief or her sort of nihilism like she was doing in the letter, she's now found a purpose in this baby. Which, you know... And again, I'm not a writer for television. I don't know how these things work, obviously. But that idea feels a little pedestrian to the idea of her, like, containing herself to her house and living with loved ones figures. (laughs) You know what I mean? I just feel like that's more interesting than this sort of what seems to me kind of like a run-of-the-mill setup for, like, family drama. Yeah, yeah, I you know, and and I guess this is what I would say in my last kind of take on the show in the season is to me it does feel like you know you're taking a genre story, you're injecting it with a lot of emotion and quote unquote character studies of grief, yeah. quote unquote, like it's these buzzwords that I think yeah. I think you know you're adding a sheen to what's already come before, but you know to me it's like you could really embrace your genre and really come out with something a little more engaging, right? And and look, I'm not about um, you know, dealing with a show that is not there. Yeah. But yeah, like if you had these characters and you said, we're willing to, yeah, like go to crazy places with these characters, make it a little more of like a just a TV show versus like what you said, right? This is a story about grief. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's it's some it's some mishmash of of between, but yeah, you're you're missing out on some good opportunities to really just like, ugh, like creep like Breaking Bad. I thought did did really good episodes of that. You know, there there are these great character moments, but then there are these also moments of like, you know, Hank's shootout with the uh, twins in that parking lot. It's one of the in most insane like sustained tense moments in yeah, television. That's true. Like history. Yeah. Or face off, right? With the uh Fring kind of explosion. Like that yeah. I know you have problems, yeah. but you you shut up. That's not my you, thing. But I but I will say, despite and this is way off topic, despite despite any of the issues I had with Breaking Bad the Ozymandias episode oh my goodness is like literally one of the greatest hours of television ever crawl space i would put crawl space up there i don't know which one that is to 
That, like I have chills. Is just that the re- one that ends it. where he's screaming from underneath the basement? He's screaming and laughing from underneath. The camera's pulling up, and the camera does that shake thing where yeah. you just like his whole world is being shaken by this, and it's all fueled to like I need to get to this money, I need to get to this money, and the money's gone. Yeah, and you have him framed in that yeah hole in the floor. Yeah, it didn't register with me as much, dude. <laughs> Let's stick with Ozymandias because I totally agree. That's, yeah, no, it's that's great. one of the greatest episodes yeah. of television history. Yeah, but yeah, it's like you know, it's the same thing like The Wire. You know, like like The Wire to me is is a show that sells out to its characters. You know, yeah, and so there are seasons where you go, "What's happening?" And it's like exactly, it's awesome because you're you're really zoning in and getting in tune with these characters. So at the end when they put any kind of plot machinations in motion or whatever. Um, you're, you're, you're really invested and connected, you yeah. know, but, but the leftovers is not doing the character work that the wire was doing. And it's not, you know, kind of doing the, uh, American horror story or, you know, what, what, whatever kind of genre way going over into the other end where it's like characters. Yeah. What? No, we're about Siamese twins, you know, <laughs> with bad teeth. Like that's, yeah, that's our character. Right. We're just about being the like extreme genre machinations of as as you can imagine, right? Like the yeah. character stuff doesn't doesn't matter. We're just yeah. trying to show you the craziest genre. What else stuff you got? Yeah, we got uh clowns and we've got, you know, yeah. whatever, murderous clowns and psychopath killers and yeah, it's it's just like it's that's that's crazy. That's insane, you know. But um you know, they they definitely haven't found their their groove i would say this first season it's kind of up and down and kind of jumping over all over and it wasn't as tidy or neat of season thematically or narratively as i think we would have hoped yeah yeah all right well that's it that's it for this episode that's it for possibly this podcast uh but i will say First and foremost, I would say thank you to everyone that's listened, not only this far, but to any of the podcasts in this series and has made it to this point. It, um, it boggles my mind. Like I read somebody today who said like they binged. Yeah, on, I read that I, too. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine binging on my yeah. voice. No. So. Yeah. So like a serious, very serious, heartfelt thanks to anyone who has listened um, to any of our podcasts and especially to anyone who has listened to at this point, which is two hours in. Are we two hours? Yeah, yeah, but but we really do appreciate it. Um, with that being said, this is probably the last episode f- on this podcast feed, at least until season two starts. Uh, I will say there's no guarantee that we will be podcasting season two, but I feel like after a break... I don't see why not. You know what I mean? Like I'm sure after this break and leading up to season two, I'll be excited to do it again, despite how I feel at the end of season one. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, So, you know, again, I, you know, we can't say thanks enough for the people listening. We really do appreciate it. Uh, The feedback has been great. It's, and it's been kind of like, it's been what I've wanted. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. There's been a lot of really good feedback and, and a lot of the feedback has been, you know, people 
interacting, not just being like, Hey, it's a great show or whatever, but people like interacting and being like, this is what I think. And that's what we were looking for. And so we really appreciate that. With that being said, until next season, we're probably, this is probably the last one. We're not going to do a wrap up of the season. Like I said before, I think we're just going to cut it off here. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, I would very heartily recommend listening to our main podcast, which is called Everything is Interesting. And it is kind of a podcast where we take this level of dissection and discussion to kind of anything that we find interesting. So movies, books, TV shows we've talked culture. about before, culture, music, just whatever. Um so I would really recommend you listen to that maybe in the meantime until Leftover Season 2 comes back on. But again, I want to say thanks to the people listening. Um, any other info you can find out by looking in our show notes, you know, email addresses, Twitter handles, music credits, all of that is found in our show notes. And, and I think that you'll find if you do want to continue a conversation or if you have something you want to say, like we're, we're still be active on Reddit and yeah, through, through email. So, I mean, feel free to keep the conversation going. You know, even if this is the last, you know, podcast episode we do, you yeah. can still communicate with us. I, I, I will still talk about this show all through the off Absolutely. season. If somebody yeah. wants to keep talking about theories and stuff like that, I'll still, still engage that so yeah that that's that's right um so yeah the emails you can find in our show notes and and like he said there have been a handful of people that have emailed us and we do our our we we do keep in contact with those people and like i said at the beginning of the show i like to go back and forth one of the things i like the most is getting people's perspectives right and and being able to look at the show in a different way because i'm obviously coming to the show with a very limited scope from my perspective, you know what I mean? So being shown a different way to look at things, I really appreciate. Limited Um, intelligence, limited scope. (laughs) Right. Uh, So yeah, all of that, blah, 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 blah. It's in the show notes. You can follow this show and our future podcasts and our website in general on Twitter. We are at brown, blue, white. You can follow me on Twitter, Justin Blizzard. You can follow me on Twitter. I am at Blizzard with nine Z's. You can follow Keith on Twitter. At Things Come Right. And uh, yeah, until next season, potentially. Or ever. Or ever, right? Until we're all departed and we meet each other (laughs) in that alien spaceship. Right. Yeah, we'll... uh, See you later.